Take your Bible, Genesis 43. Genesis 43. If you don't have a Bible, there are some available in the chairs in front of you, or uh, we have some actually some paper Bibles on your way out the door on your right-hand side. You can grab one of those as a gift from us to you if you don't have one at home. But Genesis 43. We are returning to our series on the life of Joseph. We're calling this story A Life in God's Hands. And we see the life of Joseph on full display in this story, beginning in chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50. I don't know about you, but when things get uncertain, when times get uncertain, when you go through something, when you're not sure what's going to happen, some of us have different responses. There are certain of us who tend to, to grip and hold even tighter. When, when we're not sure how things are going to end up, we become kind of paranoid and we start to try to manipulate and control as many factors as possible. I have been in many weddings. I have been uh, uh, part, of a, part of weddings. I have had my own mar- wedding. Uh, I have done many weddings. And it's always fascinating to me that sometimes when a wedding is going on, it's a high stress situation for some folks, uh, that people become very, very, very particular about very certain things in order to make sure that everything works exactly how it's supposed to be. When things can go poorly, our temptation, our tendency is to grip harder. And I think what we reveal about ourselves in these moments is that we trust ourselves more than anyone else. If you're going to, look, in order to get it done right, just let me do it. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Here, I'll handle it. Back out. We've all been there before. We trust our perspective. We trust our wisdom. We trust our skill in handling the situation more than anybody else. We get this I'll handle it mentality. Um, the mentality is nothing new. It's as old as the new. It's, as new <laughs> it's like the Old Testament. I mean, we see it in the Old Testament here in this story. Uh, like the title of this message says, I, today I'm going to be challenging you to, when you get in these moments, to release your control to an almighty God. That is the theme for this message, and you'll see it through this story, that we need to learn what it means to release that control. We find ourselves in in Genesis 43. Joseph is in charge of Egypt. He is a magistrate in Egypt, and for seven years of plenty, he has been in charge of the nation as they have gathered food into storehouses so that when the seven years of famine come, they will have the food not only for themselves but to sell back to the world. And they engage in this process, and we see them, uh, people coming from all over the world to buy food. Among them are Joseph's brothers. And uh, Joseph is amassing power to Pharaoh as these people come and purchase food. And clearly, God has orchestrated all of this in order to do one, one specific thing, and that's repeated throughout this story, is that is God has done this to preserve life so that they may live and not die. That's a theme you see throughout this passage. Well, in chapter 42, we saw the brothers come and visit for the first time down to Egypt. They come to buy food, and who do they run into? Who do they meet? But their brother whom they had sold into slavery. The brother that they thought they had gotten rid of now is facing them and in charge of them in one way or another, but they don't recognize him because he has gone to this mass. He's become this powerful person. He's probably completely looking like an Egyptian. He's wearing Egyptian clothing. He's, he's dressed like an Egyptian. He's acting like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian. And, and, and they, of course, this is the last place that they would expect to see their brother. And, and, their brother, and Joseph sees his brothers. He accuses them of being spies. 
He says, you're not 12 brothers or you're not uh, 10 brothers here. You're, you're, you're spies coming out to see our land. And they say, no, 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 we have an aged father at home. We have a, a brother at home. And Joseph says, really? Well, why don't you bring that brother with you? And until you bring that brother with you to prove that you're all brothers, I'm going to hold one of these men, Simeon, I'm going to hold him in jail. The brothers return home and on their way home, they open up their sacks to find that one of their sacks had its money restored in the sack. And they become terrified because they think to themselves, oh no, we cannot ever go back to Egypt now. They're going to think that we stole the money. We're going to think that we, we, not, we, we bought this, this food and then we actually kept our money. And then when they get back home, they tell their father about all that has happened. They open up all their sacks and they find that all of their money has been restored and they're terrified even further. And their father is terrified because he says that they are going to end up uh, bringing him to his grave with gray hair. And then we keep going and they say, but you have to understand, we're not going to be able to go back unless we bring Benjamin. And, and, and their father gets very angry with them here. God's desire, though, through all of this, is not the same as their desire. God's desire is to reunite this family, to bring reconciliation. But there are some steps that have to happen before we get to that reconciliation. Let's pray as we open up the scripture and see what God has through the story to teach us today. Father, we do ask that as we read your stories, as we read your word, that you would open up our hearts to you today. And Father, I have no doubt that many of us struggle just as these men and as Jacob did to holding on things tightly. We seek to control the world around us because we really believe that we are the best ones to solve our own problems. Father, may we recognize today that we need to release our control to an almighty God. And may we walk out of here today with that commitment in our hearts that whatever specific area in our life we are holding on tightly, we might release it back to you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As the story begins in Genesis 43, we begin by seeing man's feeble attempts to control. Man's feeble attempts to control. We see Jacob and his sons trying to exert as much control over their situation as possible. Walk with me through this as you'll see beginning in verses 1 to 2. We see the control through command. Now the famine was severe in the land and it came to pass when they had eaten up, when they had consumed the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. We see here that the famine had been severe in the land of Canaan. And due to the severity of this famine, they had completely consumed the food that they had purchased. And at no point along the way, as the food was getting lower and lower and lower, did any of them have any thought to themselves that, you know, we ought to consider what we're going to do when we run out of food. They, they, had, they had not even thought about that problem, apparently, because finally Jacob gathers his sons together and he orders them. He commands them around. He says, go back and buy us a little food. Now that, that, that should stick out to you a little bit because it's such a, such a casual way of saying this. I mean, we recognize what happened last time. Remember, it's a whole trip from the land all the way down to Egypt, and then they were interrogated, and one of them was imprisoned and left there, and, and now they're being told, just go buy us a little food, as if they could just go outside, go to Walmart, and, and swipe their credit card and get a grocery bag full of stuff and bring it home. No, they're, they're in the middle of a famine. This means loading up donkeys and 
going on a caravan to a foreign country and dealing with dignitaries. And, and Jacob here just casually throws this, this out there. And, and this is a, a sense in which we feel like that, that Jacob is trying his best to just order his sons around. We've seen this as a character trait of Jacob throughout. He, he, he gets his sons together and he orders them around. And I think some of us are, are guilty of this kind of mentality. When, when things seem to be out of our control, we try to boss people around. And Jacob here is doing just that. I think it's showing his weakness. It's showing his feeble attempts at controlling. He's not living in reality. He's saying, buy us a little food. How hard could it be? And they're thinking to themselves, we can't do that. Here's also control through deception. Look at verses 3 through 7. Judah, one of the sons, speaks up to his dad and reminds him why they had not yet gone back. He says, Judah spoke to him saying, the man. No, that's a great. The man. Okay, we don't know who he is yet. We know who he is. We know he's Joseph, but they call him the man. And when he says the man, everyone knows exactly who he's referring to. It's that guy. The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, speaking now to Jacob, we will go down and buy you food. But if you send not, if you do not send him, we will not go down, for the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. He lays it out. He says, here's the deal. Unless Brenjamin goes with us, we don't even have a chance of seeing him. We have no opportunity here. And then Israel, notice Israel, Jacob's the same person. Notice his response. And here's where we get the deception part. He says, why did you deal wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? We told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? They're being very reasonable here. They're saying, Dad, what choice did we have? But Jacob, notice how he first sought to control the situation by ordering his sons around. But now he moves to suggesting they would have done better if they would have deceived the man instead of telling the truth. Now, does this strike us as consistent with Jacob's personality? Absolutely. This guy is a deceiver through and through. His whole life is full of deception. To him, deception is like second nature. So he looks at his sons who've told the truth. And he says, how could you be so stupid? You told him the truth. What were you thinking? You should have been deceptive here. You should never have told him the truth. And if anyone knows about deception, Jacob is the one who knows all about it. His name means a trickster. It means a deceiver. It means one who, who is deceptive. And so he can't believe that his sons did not pick up on his, his strategy for dealing with this situation. And also notice that he took it personally. Look at verse 6. He says, why did you deal wrongfully with me? He says, by not lying, you, you dealt wrongfully with me. Someone who's trying to control the situation often takes things as personal assaults, personal insults, personal, takes things very personally. That's exactly how Jacob felt. And, and I think a lot of times we do the same thing. Our fears lead us to lying about situations as an attempt to control them. We think to ourselves, well, they don't need to know everything about the situation. I will just bend the truth, not tell the truth. I will deceive as a way of controlling and we have to be careful, man's feeble attempts to control through command, through deception, but also through promises. Look at verses 8 and 9. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and you, we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. 
If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. It's remarkable that Judah speaks up in a way that his brother Reuben did earlier, but in a way he did not do. If you go back to chapter 42, we notice that Reuben spoke to his father. Go back to 42, 37. It says, Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you in my hands. Reuben's willing to put his own sons at risk for Benjamin not coming back, but, but Judah says, I will be the surety for him. I will be able to stand in the, in the gap, and if, if I don't bring him back, he can take my life. He tells Jacob that Benjamin, he calls him here a lad, meaning he's a young man, with him. And the reason for this is stakes are very high. He says, we do this so that we may live and not die. If we don't go, we're going to die. And it's not just me. It's going to be you, and it's going to be our little ones. There's three generations. You, us, and our little ones are all going to die if we don't get food. This is the only chance we have. And notice how he thought he, Judah, Judah would make it happen. He made promises. He said, look, I, I, will, I will give you these promises. I, I will be surety for him. And out of my hand, now it's very noble of him, but he is trying to control his father. He's trying to manipulate the situation. He's doing the very best he can to try to make progress here. And how many of us have done things like this? We make promises to other people or promises to God as a way of trying to make a situation happen. We, we often will say things like, Lord, I'll never do this again. Lord, Lord, if you get me out of the situation, I'm giving up this. Lord, I will, I will submit my life to you, I promise, if you just let me do this or whatever. We bargain with God. We make promises to God and we try to control things. And I think that that shows how, how much power we think we really have. All of these people thought they had power. We also see in verse 10 that we see avoidance or delay has been a tactic to this point. He says in verse 10, and for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. They had lingered they had, and it had gotten them nowhere. Problems, sometimes we, we think if we just wait long enough, problems will solve themselves. We think that if we wait and we delay and we linger, that maybe it'll go away, but nothing had changed. Simeon was still in Egypt. They were still running out of food. The famine had not yet ended. Maybe they did not realize the famine would continue for as long as it did, but we see from verse 2, if you go back to chapter 43, verse 2, that, that they, as I mentioned, they had waited until they could, had consumed their food to do anything. This is a tactic that a lot of us have. We, we, we try to wait things out. We think if we can delay, we can linger, we can go long enough, and eventually things will be solved. But we see another trial here is that not only did they delay, not only did they make promises, and they, the deception was on the table and, and ordering people around, but also there was a control through gifts. This is the last tactic, last method that Jacob here called Israel uses as he tries to ensure that his beloved son will be coming home to him. He wants to, he cannot lose another son. He's already lost Joseph, and he cannot lose another son of his beloved wife. And so here, verse 11, the father Israel said to them, if it must be so, if you're backing me in a corner, if I have to make a decision, then do this. Here's his control again. He says, take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry them down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey and spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to 
the man. I want you to notice, and if you have a pencil, it's a great thing here to just circle the number of times the word take is used here. He says, take this and take that and take and take and take. He gives the list of lavish gifts considering that they are in the middle of a famine. Load up these gifts with you. Bring double the money in your hand. Take the money that was returned to you. Take the money that, that you, we have to pay for the other stuff. Bring it all with us. And go down there together. Try to cover all your bases in the last climactic moment. Finally, he says, and take your brother. Verse 13, take your brother also. Like it's the last thing he wants to say, but he finally admits that they have to take their brother, and he finally gives his approval. When we try to hold on to control we take all kinds of strategies. We have all kinds of strategies for trying to maintain control when a situation looks like it's getting out of hand. I think all of us can identify with this kind of scenario. Based in a fear of something bad happening, we often try to do these things. Now, the next verse in this passage reveals the only hope that we really have for dealing with uncertainties in the future. Because none of these things are really going to be sufficient, are they? There are feeble attempts, but the only hope we have is to recognize God's sovereignty. And this is what we must come to. We must come to recognizing God's sovereignty. It's our only hope. And I think finally at the end of this, of this speech, Jacob finally gets where he should have started. That is with the, the understanding that the Almighty God is the one who's in control. He is the one who has absolute authority. Look with me in your Bible. This is the most important verse in this chapter. Look carefully. He says, may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your older brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Notice he says, may God Almighty, may Almighty God. Now, this is an English translation for the name in the Bible. The name is El Shaddai. This is the name for God Almighty. And it's hard for us to translate this, this exactly because there's, there's not really, we don't really understand exactly where the root is for this. It's probably either connected to the idea of strength, where we get our term Almighty God. It also be, could be connected to the, the word for mountains as of God of the mountains or God of kingdoms. But he notices here that he recognizes it is up to El Shaddai to give you men favor or mercy before the man. Now, the man has authority in Egypt and on earth, but God Almighty has power in heaven. And it's this recognition, first, that the Lord gives. This is the first part of this recognition. He says he is the one who's going to give mercy and compassion. We are making all these preparations. I'm going to bring all this stuff, bring all these gifts. You're going to do all these things. You're going to try your best. He says, but really, I'm going to recognize that it's God Almighty to give you mercy before the man. It is God who gives. In the end, it's up to the Lord whether they have favor or not. Recognize sovereign God. You must recognize that God is the one who gives. We have to give up our feeble attempts to control and recognize God's sovereignty, but we also need to understand complete submission. It is the Lord who takes. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't just leave it with the positive. He, he ends here with the phrase, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. That is, if I lose it all, I have lost it all. This is a moment, I believe, of complete submission to the Almighty God. 
the sovereign God. He knows that as the Lord has given him so much in his life, the Lord has also taken from him, and he possibly will take again. My question for you today is, are you comfortable with a sovereign God who gives and who takes? You can tell how comfortable you are with a sovereign God who gives and takes by how much you try to control your life. The more you try to amass control for yourself, the more you try to micromanage every aspect of your life, the less you control, the less you trust God. Because you're showing God, I really don't think you have this under control. I have to have my fingers on every single button at the same time, just in case God forgets. But you have to be content with the fact that our God gives and our God takes. In fact, in the book of Job, Job goes through a, a massive loss where he loses all of his riches. He, he loses all of his children. And he's sitting there and he, he, he is grieving. It says he rose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground. He is in grieving and in pain. And then he worships. And how does he worship? He says this poem to the Lord. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is how you worship in times of loss. You recognize God is the one who gives, God is the one who takes, and you recognize that God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And there's so much going on here, more than just that phrase. In fact, I'm going to reference several verses in the next few moments because when he references El Shaddai, Jacob is remembering something. He's remembering the covenant or the promise that God has made with him and that God has made with his fathers. If you go back to the book, or go back to chapter 17 and verse 1, I have these on the screen. You don't have to turn. You can if you'd like, but to Abraham, God spoke. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're at Jacob now. So this is Jacob's grandfather. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant with you. A covenant is a promise that involves obligations and blessings. Obligations between the parties and blessings from one of the parties. If they follow through with their obligation, God's blessings will be upon them. And notice the kind of blessings that God has planned for them. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, it shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father to many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. God, in Genesis 17, promises Abram, Abraham that he is going to make him a fruitful people. If this is going to be true, then somehow, some way, El Shaddai would have to give favor to the brothers from the man. Seems impossible, but this was his request. When he was much younger, Jacob was called to his father Isaac's side. Isaac blessed him with this same name. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Take for yourself a wife from there, the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty, may El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And then when God met Jacob, 
and he changed his name to Israel, affirming his place in God's plan, affirming his, connect, his connection to the covenant of God. God uses this name El Shaddai once again. It says God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Padanaram, and he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation shall, and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and your descendants after you I give this land. And Jacob rose up, and then he called this place Bethel. But notice, I am Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. It's connected to the commands to be fruitful and multiply. And if you keep reading, you see God's promise of a fruitful nation came from his power. He says, I will, get, I will make your name great. I will make you a nation. I will make you a, a, a family of kings. And God promises out of that same power to give them. He, he had to recall this hope as he's calling back towards his sons there. He says, and may God Almighty, may El Shaddai give you favor with this man. He's calling back to this hope to muster the strength that he has to do that is trust in Almighty God. Now, sometimes you're going to have to come face to face with your responsibility to release control and just trust a sovereign God. And I don't know when that's going to happen in your life. Some of you, you've had like many of these moments for the past many years. You, you can reflect on time after time when you've had to say, Lord, okay, it's all in your hands. Some of you have had not so many of these. Others of you, it's been, you know, we all have different levels of this kind of thing. What I'm doing now is I'm trying to, to, to charge you to prepare yourself so when the moment comes when you are faced with this, recognize what you're doing. Try not to control the situation, but release it to an almighty God. And what you see is that God has mysterious ways of working his way out. God has mysterious ways of making things happen. If you keep reading, we see two things that surprise us in the following. I don't think this went like anybody thought it would go. First, we see hospitality instead of hostility. They were expecting hostility, but in verse 15, we have the trip to Egypt just as Jacob commanded. The men took the present and Benjamin. They took double money in their hand. They arose, went down to Egypt, and stood before Joseph. They acted out of desperation, and what happened when they got to Egypt surprised them. It was not what they were expecting because when Joseph, verse 16, saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. And the men did as Joseph ordered. The man brought the men into Joseph's house. Remember that the men were just coming to Egypt to buy food. They were famished, they were hungry, and they were in danger of dying because of lack of food. And God works in mysterious ways because they show up and the guy invites them to a banquet, completely surprising them. In fact, we know they're surprised because they show great fear in their response. In verse 18, it says, Now the men were afraid. Because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they're like, have you ever been to a foreign country and people are talking in a language you don't understand and people are doing things? You're like, what's happening? What's happening right now? I'm a little nervous about what's going on. I don't understand anything. That's how they probably felt. They're being ushered around and brought into Joseph's home and they're thinking to themselves, what is happening? In fact, it says, they wonder, is it because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time? that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us, seize us, and take us as slaves with our donkeys. They imagine they're being treated like this because of the vengeance for the money that they took home with them, but the brothers imagine a scenario where the Egyptians are going to take them and make them slaves. Now, why would they think that? 
I don't know, maybe because that's exactly what they did with their brother. They, they, they seized him and they made him a slave. And so they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, oh no, now we're going to be made slaves. And, and it's kind of funny, actually, because there are these, these if you think about it, these are like, uh, they're shepherds, they're, they're country folk, they're not city folk, they're coming into the big city, and, and the first, their first concern is, oh, they're going to want our donkeys. Those are some really good donkeys. They're going to want them, they're going to want to steal them, we've got to be careful. Oh no, we're in trouble now if they take our donkeys. Like, it's actually, there's a little bit of humor in this, that they, they don't really, they, they are way over their heads. And, and then it says that this is exactly, that they're confused and afraid, and so what they do is, is they go into Joseph's house and they explain themselves to the steward. And, and they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house and they talked with him at the door. So they're not even inside yet. They're outside frantically, not wanting to go inside, afraid of what might happen in there. And they say, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, verse 21. But it happened when we came to my encampment that we opened our sacks and therefore every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. And so we have brought it back in our hand and we, we brought down our money with our hands to buy food. We, we don't know who put money in our sacks. They explain with accuracy exactly what happened to them. There are perhaps a little bit of detail here or there that's not quite exactly how it happened, but they, they basically give the summary statement of what happened. And they even volunteer the fact that they brought extra money to pay for the food that they're going to buy this time. They're open. They confess everything. They show a, a sign of repentance. Openness is a sign of repentance. Complete transparency is a sign of repentance. Then in verse 23, there's unexpected gift because he said that stewards had peace be with you. Do not be afraid. He, he, they must have been trembling. They must have been uh, stuttering and, and, and muttering to themselves. They must have been beside themselves the way he responds because what he says is, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, this is probably the same man whom Joseph had commissioned to put the money in their sacks the first time. And in many ways, he's showing just that. He's showing that they are in God's hands, and God is doing this for them. God's hand is at work. And he says, don't, don't worry about it. I don't know what you're talking about. The money that you have must have been given to you by your God, because I have your money, and that money is yours. And there's an unexpected kindness in verse 24, because the men brought men, excuse me, the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And he washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made their present ready for Joseph coming at noon. They heard they would eat bread there. It's the last thing you would expect. I mean, they're expecting to be taken advantage of, sold into slavery, stolen, and, and, and they're, they're given gifts and, and hospitality instead of hostility. And, and they're going to be eating with the man from Egypt. So they get ready to present this gift to Joseph, still thinking they need to do something to keep him from lashing out at them in anger. But instead, we see blessings instead of business. Look with me in verse 26. When Joseph came home and brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, they bowed down before him to the earth, and he asked them about their well-being. And he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They prepare this gift, and they're ready for business. They're ready to talk business. And, and they do the whole very formal thing of bowing to the earth and giving the gift. But he remembers their last conversation. He asks about their father. Verse 28, they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads. They, they prostrated themselves. And once again, they fulfill the prophecy 
that Joseph dreamed about when his brothers would all come before him. But then he sees Benjamin in verse 29. He lifted his eyes. He saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He says, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And, they said, and then he said, notice, God be gracious to you, my son. Blessings instead of business. Joseph gives great blessings here. He blessed them with a God-fearing blessing. I'm sure this would have been unexpected from an Egyptian magistrate who worshipped the god of the sun, worshipped these strange animal gods. Yet this Egyptian blesses them from the god. He says, God be gracious to you. But more surprised, probably what happens next in verse 30, it says, his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face. He came out and he restrained himself. And he said, serve the bread. We don't know how long this took, but Joseph was overwhelmed with, with emotion at seeing his brother and blessing his brother that he had to excuse himself and cry and weep. And then he washed his face, came back, and they served the bread. And he had a hard time holding in his emotions. And they're, set, they're seated together in verse 32. It says that once again, they're eating together. They, they set him a place by himself, Joseph, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. There's three different seating arrangements here because the Egyptians would not eat food with the Hebrews. That's an abomination to the Egyptians. The Egyptians did not like to socialize with Hebrews at all because they were, uh, they were, they were shepherds. They did not like shepherds. And, and so Joseph, though, is eating with them, close enough to pass them the food, but not at the same table. And this, once again, is meant to provoke their reminding, or remind their conscience, provoke them and say, hey, remember the last time we did this, the last time the brothers ate together. There they all were. They were gathered together, and Joseph was aside. When Joseph was thrown into that pit, there he was, aside, uh, uh, disconnected from them, and the brothers ate. And here they are again, Joseph disconnected from the brothers, and they are eating. And then Joseph shows his understanding of who they are by verse 33. He sat before them, the firstborn according to birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. G Joseph then takes the men, he lines them up, and he puts them in order. He gives them a seating arrangement exactly in their birthright order. And of course, these are grown men, and, and you know how it is with grown men. You can't exactly tell who's like two years older than the other, and, but Joseph knew exactly where they went. And of course, they don't know what's going on. They're confused. The brothers are, are, are bewildered, but it's, it would be very impolite for them to ask anything. And so then they get served food in verse 34. He took servings to them before him, and Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. And I don't know exactly why he did this, perhaps to see whether they would respond wrongfully to a sibling rivalry, or maybe they would get angry at Benjamin for receiving extra portions like Joseph had received this extra gift of a coat. I don't know, but he showed blessing and affection for Benjamin. And what we find is that when we recognize God's sovereignty and we cease our own efforts to micromanage the world around us, we recognize that God's plan for us is good and right, and it's never exactly what we would have thought. A couple of verses to leave you with as we close. First from Proverbs 3. I think many of you know this verse. The Bible tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct our paths. This is a scripture memory verse for like second graders. And so often, we think that that theology or that, that truth is a second-grade truth. This is, this is full of gr adult, grown-up stuff. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Don't lean on your own understanding. Cease with your feeble attempts to control your situations and throw your control to the hands of an almighty God. And there's another passage that we read at the beginning of this of this morning's service, and that is, be still and know that I am God. The word be still has the idea of stop striving. When we, we, we wrestle with my kids, I wrestle with my kids. My wife doesn't partake in that. When I wrestle with my kids and they come at me, they, they, they flail and they punch and they swing, and I end up picking them upside down, and their arms are going everywhere, their legs are kicking, and I can do this to all of them, by the way. None of them are too big yet. And I can, I can manhandle these kids, and they, 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 are, they are moving and swinging. And, and the idea, when I, I say, you know, they're not going to be able to beat me yet, but if I'm holding a child or two like this, and I say, hey, cut it out, you're not going to win. What I'm saying is stop striving against me. Stop trying to beat me up. Stop trying to swing your arms and connect. It's not going to happen. I've got you right where I want you. No matter how strong you think you are, I got you. I, with one hand, I can push you into the ground, okay? I've got to be careful because these kids are going to get bigger than me soon. But it's like, you know what I'm saying? And, and when God is telling us here in, in, in Psalm 46, when he says, cease striving, what he's saying is stop flailing around. Calm yourself. Cease striving and know that I am God. What's the connection here is that you have to stop trying to manipulate your circumstances, stop trying to like micromanage everything, your feeble attempts to control your outcomes through all those things we listed at the beginning that these men tried to do, and just recognize that he's God. He is the almighty God. He is El Shaddai. He is the one you need to just say, okay, Lord, you can do what you want to do. You give and you take. If, if it's good, it's good. If it's not, it's not. I trust you and I believe you because he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You need to release control to an almighty God today. And some of you today have been holding on tightly. And because you hold on tightly, you're not going anywhere. You've been flailing towards God. You've been angry that God won't give you what you want. You've been angry. You feel penned in. We must release control to the Almighty God. The second way you must release control to an Almighty God has to do with those who are not yet redeemed, those who are not yet saved. I would challenge you in this way. Many of us seek to work our way to heaven by being good. We think if we're good people, if we do the right things, if we go to the right places, if we give the right amount of money, if we have the right attitude, if we're born into a good family, or we do this stuff, then we work our way to heaven and we have control over our eternal destiny. My friends, God tells us that we need to believe in him for salvation, which means what you're doing is you are, you are resting in control of an almighty God. That, that your eternal destiny is based on what someone, something that someone else has done. How does that make you feel? It should make you feel liberated. Your, your eternal destiny is based on what Christ did for you, not what you're doing on your own. Praise God. Can you release control to an almighty God and see God do great and mysterious things? Come to faith in Christ today. If you don't know Christ, now is the perfect time to do that. I'm convinced a lot of us here, a lot of you claim to know Christ. I know you're a lot of your testimonies, but I think a lot of us still, even though we know Christ, we trust him for eternity, we get very particular about the specifics, about our day-to-day -day life. And a lot of us need to today bow our hearts, bow our heads, and say, Lord, I'm releasing this control to you. I'm letting you move. I'm letting you do what you need to do because you are almighty God and you deserve it.
Would you bow with me in prayer as we pray? Father, as we close today in this service, I pray that you'd help us to truly release control to you. We come before you knowing that our life, like Joseph, is in your hands. And we might try to control with all these different circumstances, all these different tactics. But Lord, I pray that today you'd help us to really see the truth. That you are almighty God. You are El Shaddai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who promises to, to, to be good, who promises to protect. And Lord, you have been with us, and you will continue to be with us. You will take us through many difficult things. And Father, I pray that we would remember now the commitments we're making to you, that we will release our control to you. And we ask you to give favor, but we recognize that you give and you take. At the end, Lord, may we with Job pray, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Every head bowed and every eye closed, I'll give you a moment to deal with God now. Confess this to the Lord and say, Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive me for my selfish fear, my selfish micromanaging control, whatever sin is in your life. And say, Lord, I'll obey you. I'll do what you... I've been delaying something. I've been bargaining with you. I've been trying to manipulate. I've been trying to get out of something. I didn't want to obey. But today, I submit my heart to an almighty God. When you leave, follow through on that commitment to do and live in obedience to do what God has called you to do because you know that God works in mysterious ways and he will work things out far different perhaps than you ever anticipated. Father, as we deal with you now, I pray you continue to work even as we leave this building. We ask God that you help us live with the understanding that you are a God who loves us very much. And you are almighty God. In his name we pray. Amen.